No wonder. I, I thought it was my eyes. Were Good to go? Okay. Um, today, what we're going to cover, and uh, it should be slightly less heady um, than what we were in last week for those of you that were there. Um, we just finished the movement of the modern era of philosophy, where the whole debate was between the empiricists, those who believe that all knowledge comes in via the senses, and the rationalist, those who believe we are born with innate ideas, innate principles, and we can reason from those to understand about the world. Now, the empiricists, we had Locke and Berkeley and David Hume, and on the rationalist side, we had Descartes and Leibniz and Spinoza. We didn't cover Spinoza. Um, the importance of last week's lecture was the watershed moment of David Hume. David Hume came along and he said, and David Hume was an empiricist, mind you, believed that only things that we take in through the senses can be counted as knowledge. That's all we can possibly know. He was convinced by the arguments of John Locke. But Hume understood that at this basis, the core of all of our understanding was the principle of causality, this notion that one thing causes something else. But if all of our knowledge comes via the senses, do we ever sense causality? And Hume said, no, we don't. We sense thing A followed by thing B, but we never see what's called a necessary connection between the two, right? If I drop the pen, it falls. You say, I caused the pen to fall, but you didn't see that. You didn't see a causation. What you saw is a pen dropping and a pen falling, two simultaneous events. And we assumed that since the first one preceded the second one, the first one was the cause of the second one. But that's not what our senses actually tell us. We were making up that necessary connection. And Hume and uh, many Hume scholars have given the famous example that I gave you last time of the people on the train. If you remember, there's a couple on a train and the man has never seen this weird fruit before and it's a banana, but he's never seen it before. And he opens it and he goes to bite into the banana. But the second that he bites into the banana, the train enters a tunnel. And the man screams, don't eat the banana. It makes you go blind. Um, and his experience told him, I bit into the banana, A, I immediately lost my vision, so there must be a causation between eating bananas and going blind. And all of us laugh and say, well, of course the banana didn't cause you to go blind. But how do we know that? Well, if that would have happened every single time of your life, it's just random coincidence, every time you bit into banana, you happen to enter, or enter a tunnel, we would think, what? Eating bananas has caused you to go blind. So causality is not something that we actually experience, it's something that we are innately born with. But if all of our knowledge must be some, all true knowledge comes through the senses, this whole way of ordering the world is very confusing because cause and effect cannot be sensed. Now, that was very, very influential to Immanuel Kant who came along and what Kant did, and what we should take away from Kant is Kant synthesized, he brought together the tradition of the rationalists and the tradition of the empiricists. Kant says our knowledge is not just strictly based on experience and it's not strictly based on innate ideas. Our experience, our understanding of the world has to be what he calls a synthetic a priori, which is just a big fancy way of saying a combination of rationalism and empiricism. Right? If you remember what Kant says, he says we're all born with innate ideas, innate principles, namely time and space. Right? Time and space, Kant says, are not real, and they're not. Right? Time is relative, as Einstein proved. It's not actually a real thing. It's a way for humans to view the world. But anytime when I look at Christy back here, I have to see her in time. Right? I'm not seeing her outside of time. But as time is not real, then am I actually seeing Christy as she actually is in and of herself? No, I'm seeing her through the categories of space and time, 
which are something that are just man-made. They're for man. When we say God is outside of space and time, we're saying he, these are concepts, ways for humans to view the world, but they don't actually exist. Right? And Kant says there's a bunch of categories that we view the world through. We view the world through space, through time, through quantity. Right? When I look at you and I say there's 10 of you in here, well, 10 doesn't exist. Right? 10's not a real thing. Has anyone ever seen 10 before? You've seen 10 different things. You've seen instances of this tenness, but 10 doesn't exist. Quantity is something for people, a way of viewing the world. And so Kant says our knowledge is a synthetic a priori. I experience the world and I filter it through innate ideas like time and space, but then what I get is not truth in and of itself. I get subjective truth. I get a man-made truth, a not fully truth. So what Kant says is we can never access ultimate reality. We're cut off from it. So we're cut off from God. We're cut off from ultimate reality. And at best, we can have what he calls a phenomenological understanding of things, a individual understanding of things. And that's a huge, huge moment in philosophy because Kant's dead on. He's correct. And the only answer to the Kantian dilemma that he puts forth in his Copernican revolution is Christ. Right, because Christ came into space and time, so those things which are out of space and time can only be known if it enters the categories of human understanding. So without the incarnation, knowledge is impossible, um, and the modern world is left with postmodernism and relativism because of the enormous work of Kant. Um, today we're going to take a step back chronologically because we're going to move away from epistemic philosophy or the philosophy of what we know, and we're going to get into the realm of political philosophy. And this is much more accessible, less big terms and things of that nature. Um, and we're going to talk about Thomas Hobbes today. Um, Hobbes' work, The Leviathan, um, is the single most, at least in my opinion, the single most important piece of political philosophy, political theory ever. Um, bar none. Maybe Plato's Republic, but it's the influence of Hobbes' Leviathan is felt so keenly and acutely in today's society, it would be hard to argue against it. Um, in order to understand Hobbes, Hobbes lived from 1588 to 1679. It's weird, but the best way to understand Hobbes is to go back to Epicurus. And Epicurus was a pre-Socratic, a philosopher before Socrates, who lived 300 years before Christ. Um, and Epicurus, you guys have heard of Epicureanism before, right? And when you see, if you talk about someone being an Epicurean, what's, what comes to mind right away? Eat, drink, and be merry. Eat, drink, and be merry, right? We think of hedonism, right? There's a, like a one-to-one -one correlation. We think of Epicureanism with hedonism. And that's a very, very modern reading of Epicurus, because Epicurus himself was no proponent of hedonism at all. You would think Epicurus would be someone that was just lounging around and people were feeding him grapes and fanning him all day. But Epicurus was interested in pleasure, but it was a certain kind of pleasure. Epicurus actually encouraged a very, very minimalist style of life. He encouraged his followers, if they could, to live off nothing but barley, cakes, and water. He was not into the excesses of life, but he, what he was into was pleasure, and a certain kind of pleasure. A pleasure that he believed only could be achieved when your mind was completely at ease with the surroundings of the world. So Epicurus wanted to study the world, and he wanted to understand the world. And he says, this is why we understand the world. And I quote, Do not believe there is any other goal to be achieved by the knowledge of meteorological phenomena than freedom 
from disturbance and a secure conviction, just as with the rest of physics. He says, more or less, the only reason we should study science is so that we, be, we can become secure of knowing what's going on. If we don't study science, when we hear the lightning strike or the thunder, we might be superstitious and say, oh, there's a God up there that wants to strike me down and hurt me, right? But if we can understand the mechanisms of why all of these things work scientifically, our mind can be at ease. We know exactly why the world works. Now, Epicurus was deeply influenced by a guy by the name of Democritus, who came before Epicurus, 460 BC. And Democritus actually puts forward, now this is what the genius he was, 460 years before Christ, put forth the first vision of the atom and the idea that the universe was made up of these smaller particles, these building blocks of everything. And Epicurus took that idea and he says, I like that. If the universe is built up of atoms, then I have nothing really to fear. Because although I don't understand these weird things that are going on in the universe, what are they? They're just matter. And matter can't in and of itself harm me. It can't attack me. It can't have a plan to destroy me. So I can be at ease. And eventually, as science progresses, Epicurus believes, the, the mind of man will be completely at ease because we'll understand all of these things. Now, all of that is very, very important when it comes to the philosophy of Thomas Hobbes. Because Thomas Hobbes is going to try to put forward a theory of politics that is 100% material. He wants to put forward a materialistic vision of the world and how must our politics run if the world is nothing but matter. Now Hobbes was an atheist, whether or not you read his work, um, some would, because he mentions God and whatnot, um, he might cl not call himself, there is no God, but God for Hobbes would be part of nature. God himself would be material, and the lump sum of all this matter could form some sort of universal conscience or something of that nature. But there is no God outside of matter. So Hobbes wants to build a political philosophy based on the idea that everything in the world is nothing but matter. Um, what you have in front of you right there, and those of you that don't, um, I got a little handout here, if you could pass these around. Um, this is copies of Hobbes's Leviathan, um, his cover. And it's a wonderful, wonderful picture that we'll talk about right towards the end, because a simple art history understanding of this picture will be able to give you an understanding of what Hobbes is trying to get across in the Leviathan. All right, so think about what Hobbes is doing here. He wants to develop a political philosophy based on the idea that everything in the world is matter. So if everything in the world is matter, let's go back to the very beginning. Man in his natural condition. If there is no God and everything is matter, what is the natural condition of man? Well, Hobbes says the natural condition of man is a pre-moral state. Now, when we say pre-moral, we don't mean amoral. Right, because amoral means something is not being moral. It's breaking the moral standard. But Hobbes says everything is just matter. The natural condition of man is pre-moral. It's before morality. There is no such thing as morality. We're just a bunch of atoms, right? And atoms can't have a moral imperative, can they? Right? They can do things, but they can't have an ought attached to them. Right? I ought to do this, or I ought not to do that. Right? We all follow. That makes sense, right? So Hobbes says, all right, so. We have these moral imperatives now, how do we get them? Well, he says, let's think about this natural condition of man. Everything is matter. So what would we call good if everything is just matter? 
Cobb says in the natural condition, the natural state of man, whatever leads to more pleasure or whatever makes man happy, he calls good. And whatever gets in his way of achieving his happiness, he calls bad. That seems natural enough, right? If there is no God, we're pre-moral. Whatever gets in your way, we say that's bad. Whatever helps you achieve your ends, you call it good. But what's the problem with this? Well, Mr. Phillips' ends might be quite different than Neil's ends here. And if their ends, Neil's ends are good because he determines his own good, and Mr. Phillips determines his own goods, so what if their goods clash? There's going to be some sort of a battle. And what if Mr. Phillips decides to come up to Neil and just chop his head off? We can't say that's bad, right? Because Mr. Phillips is just trying to get towards what makes him happy, right? We're pre-moral here. There are no standards. Well, this is a very, very nasty condition for mankind to be in, right? A state where everyone is trying to achieve their own personal ends and nothing can be said to be good or evil. We don't like this situation. Hobbes says the natural condition of man is a war of all against all. It's a continual war of everyone against everyone else. And he says the reason this is, is because we don't just want to have our desires met instantaneously. Mankind's desire is to have our desires met and to have them secured for the future and for our kids and for our kids' kids. So think about a state of nature. You're all hanging out in the wilderness and there's a great abundance of apples and everyone can have enough apples that they can all survive happily. Well, Mr. Phillips is over there and he says, well, yes, I have plenty of apples for me now. But Neil gave me a strange look the other day. And what if Neil decides, you know what? I know I have enough apples for, now, for right now for myself. But what if I want to take all the apples so I know that my kids and their kids and their kids will have apples forever? I can go take all those apples. So what happens between Neil and Mr. Phillips here is there's a cold war. You're, all, you're always wondering, well, when is he going to strike next? When is he going to take something from me? Even further... If there are no rules, if there is no morality, what do you have the right to? Everything. Everything. Even somebody else's body, right? You have the right to somebody else's body, right? Even to the level Hobbes would say of rape. You can murder, rape, kill, kill or steal if everything is just atoms. But this is a nasty, nasty condition for man to be in. We don't want to be in this war. And he says the war is very dangerous because of the natural equality of mankind. You would think the war would solve itself out because, well, some people are much stronger than others, right? So they're going to eventually just get to make the decisions. But Hobbes says physical strength is squashed out by other sorts of equality. Because even if Mr. David back there is much stronger than everyone else in this room right here, what can we do to even the playing field? Hobbes says there's great equality because of secret machinations, right? You can conspire against him, right? You can, he might be bigger than you and stronger than you, but you could be trickier than him, right? You could set up a booby trap and kill him that way. Or you can have confederacy with others. He starts doing things we don't like, six or seven of us gather together, and we go kill him. We knock him out, right? So there's this huge war of all against all. There's a pretty much natural equality amongst mankind, and everyone wants to achieve their own individual ends but we don't like this because it's a dangerous place to live in. Hobbes says, any of you that don't believe this is the natural condition of mankind, that the natural condition of man is a life that is nasty, short, and brutish. He says, think about your own actions. He's like, fathers hide things from their own children, 
right? When they leave the house, they lock things in certain rooms because their own children they don't trust, right? When you leave your house, what do you do? You lock your doors or you lock your car when you go to certain neighborhoods. Even those that confess, I think mankind's naturally good. Hobbes says your actions don't show that. Your actions show that you know that mankind is naturally depraved, that man try, mankind is prone to evil. So we have this natural condition of mankind where everyone has the right to everything. You have rights to do whatever you want. Now this is very important, think about that, because we're going to talk about today natural rights theory. And people say, oh, I have a natural right. I have an inalienable right to certain things. Well, Hobbes says in the state of nature, you do. You have a right to everything. But we want to get out of this war of all against all, so how could we possibly do that? How can we get out of this condition that we're in? We have to get together and say, all right, I know by nature, since we're all just atoms, we have a right to everything, but let's all universally give up some of our rights. Let's give up our right where we're saying, I know you have a right to rape me, but I'm going to give up my right to rape, but you have to give up your right to rape too. And I know you have a right to murder, but you give up your right and I'm going to give up my right too. But when you give up these rights, are we just arbitrarily giving them up? Do rights just vanish into the vapor? What do we need to do if we're giving up those rights? We need to give them to someone. We need to give them to someone that says, Ray, we are putting you in charge. We have given up our inalienable rights, our natural rights to murder, to rape, to steal. And now you have the sword of judgment over all of us. We're going to come together and you're going to watch out. And if Mr. Phillips tries to do something, you can punish him for that because we've given up our rights. Right? And Hobbes says this is how societies form. Mankind's natural, but this natural condition is a war of all against all. We don't want to be in that state, so what do we do? We want to live happily amongst one another, so we give up our natural rights. Don't we do that every day? Right? You're individuals, but you've given up tons of rights. Why? Because you want the protection of being able to live safely amongst other people. Right? You keep having rights taken away from you on a daily basis. Why? Because, well, if you want to be part of this society, you're giving up some rights, even to the absurdity of things like you have to wear a seatbelt in your car. Why? Well, these are the laws. And you've given up some of your rights. And you've given them to somebody else who's going to make a determination of what you can do. Now, Ray, once we've given him our rights, Ray is somewhat a little bit more powerful than each and every one of us now. Right? Because he has rights that we have now abdicated. We've given them to uh, either an individual or a governing body, or Hobbes would say this is how governments form, right? This is how the first formations of civil society form. We want to get out of the war of all against all, so we abdicate some personal rights. We give them to Ray, but what happens usually when we give a few of our rights away? Does that person stop there and say, that's it. I will govern from here. You guys live peaceably among yourselves. No, that person, Ray, is going to become a little bit power hungry, and he's going to say, I want a few more of your rights. I want a little bit more. And he starts dipping into your lives in immeasurable ways. Now, Hobbes says this person that we give our rights to, he doesn't call him government. He doesn't call him a magistrate. He doesn't call him a king. He calls him a Leviathan. And that's the title of his famous work here, The Leviathan. And is anyone familiar with the term Leviathan? Where do we first see the term Leviathan? We, yeah, we see the term in Genesis, we see it in Job, right? In Job 41, right? The giant sea beast. If you read Job 41, 
It says, can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he keep begging for mercy? Um, it goes on and on and on in Job 41. So Hobbes believes that once you abdicate your individual personal rights and give them to a figurehead or a government, that figurehead, that government, that individual, that body of people will not just be someone that kindly governs you. He will become an overwhelming sea monster. That's what a Leviathan, a Leviathan is. A giant sea beast who is going to stretch out and control your entire life. Now look at the picture you have in front of you here. Um, Hobbes, when he was writing his Leviathan and his treatise of how mankind forms civil governments, he had this picture um, commissioned by a man by the name of Abraham Bose. And Abraham Bose worked hand in hand with Hobbes on how this picture was to be designed. Now if you look at the picture and you take an art history class, the most important thing is obviously going to be what in this picture? What's the central image? Yeah, this giant guy. Now, if you look at him carefully, what are some things that we notice about this giant man that's the center of the picture? He's got a sword, he's got a crown. He's got a sword, he's got a crown, sure. What else do we notice about him? Yeah, if you look at him really carefully, if you heard what Mom Spanger just said right here, it looks like on the, on the line, right, that he's coming out of, he's coming out of the hillside, but it could almost be like him coming out of the waves, right? Like a giant monster that's coming out of the waves. And he looks very, very scaly, like a sea monster would, but those aren't scales. If the picture was a little clearer, you could see those are little individuals. They're individual people that make up his scales. So what is Hobbes telling you? This giant government, this sea monster that's going to control your life is made up of your individual rights. It's all of you abdicating your rights so that you could have this one conglomeration come and control you. What else do we notice about the picture? If you notice the picture, take a line if you would, look at this, and draw a line right down the middle of it with your eyes, right down the center, vertically, down the picture. And what you'll notice is Hobbes has the picture split completely in two. On, if you're looking at the picture this way, on the right side of the picture, you see this giant government figure, this Leviathan holds a sword, right? The sword is a symbol of the state. This Leviathan is going to control all state issues. Now follow that sword down and look at the pictures underneath it. What's the first picture we see? Fortress. A fortress or a castle. He's in charge of the state side of things, the castle. He's in charge of the crown. He will control, if you see the cannon there, the weapons of war. And then there's a couple war scenes. Now look at the left side of the picture. What's he holding in his hand? A bishop's crozier, right? He's saying, so not only is this Leviathan, will he eventually control all state matters? He's going to control all church matters, too. He's going to control the religiosity of the state. If you look under that scepter, what do we have on the left side? Instead of a, instead of a castle, we have a church. He's going to control the church. Instead of a crown, he has a, a bishop's hat. Instead of the weapons of war on the right side, the cannon, on the left side, we see the symbol or the lightning of excommunication. Instead of the weapons of war on the second bottom one, we have the weapons of logic, right? Those are the tools of reason or the symbols for the tools of reason. And then instead of a battlefield at the bottom, we have an excommunication or a, a liturgical scene at the bottom. So Hobbes' picture here 
It wasn't by coincidence. It wasn't just a, a, an interesting design that he liked. He's telling the whole story of his political theory in the painting here. Even further, if you look right down the middle of the words there, right underneath Leviathan, it says Leviathan, or the matter, form, and power of a commonwealth, ecclesiastical, and civil. And to divide the words in half, on the right side, the government is going to control the material world. And he's also going to control the next word, the forms, or in Plato's words, the non-physical, the metaphysical. He's going to control the way that you think, the way that you're allowed to think, the things that you're allowed to reason about. He's going to control all things in the commonwealth and ecclesiastical. He's going to control the church too, because eventually he's going to conscript you in all possible ways. Now, this is a very, very dangerous picture for Hobbes of what government is like. And we've seen government become something of this, right? You give up your initial rights to everything, and then slowly government gets larger and larger and larger and keeps prying into your life in difficult ways. But think about the Hobbesian solution to mankind problems. If the state of nature, the natural condition of man is pre-moral, there are no morals, salvation can't come in the Christian terms through a return to Eden, right? In the, the eschaton, we have a kind of a culmination or return to Eden, right? Eden was great and it was perfect. But in Hobbes' scheme, the natural condition wasn't perfect, was it? It was a war of all against all. So where would salvation be for Hobbes? Getting further and further away from the natural and becoming more and more ordered by the, by the state, by the government. Right? And this is what we've seen in modern times, not just modern as in now, but in the whole history of modernity, is when you lose God, when God is replaced, it's not just like God vanishes, something always replaces him. And usually that thing is replaced by the state. The state steps in where God has vanished. So there is no, the salvation for Hobbes can't be a return. It has to be a getting away from things. Now, think about the importance of Hobbesian political ideology in the idea of natural rights, right? Almost every ethical issue that we encounter today, we see some sort of claiming, I have a natural right to this, right? Whether it be abortion, whether it be the gay marriage debate, anything, it's natural rights. Well, if Hobbes is right, and this is why this work is so important, if everything is just matter, then what do you have a natural right to do? At the fundamental core, you as a human being, what do you have the natural right to do? Whatever you want, right? And if the natural condition of man is a war of all against all, think about it from the abortion point of view. What is the mother's condition? The mother's condition with that child in her is a natural condition of a war of all against all. That child could get in the way of her achieving her happiness, her goodness, her ends. And so what does she have a right, a natural right to do if everything is just matter? End it. Kill it. Right? And that's her natural right. Right? This is why it's so dangerous. Right? We as Christians have hopped on board with the modern um, idea of natural rights that have been shifted into our beliefs through Hobbes and Locke, right? We have natural rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's a very, very dangerous way of viewing the world, natural rights. What we do have 
from the Christian point of view, is a natural law, right? We have a natural law that's been given to us by God. And under that law, we're provided some rights, right? The modern ethicist says the rights come before the law, right? The woman's right to what? Whatever she wants, whatever helps her get her desires. That's what we base the law off of. And that's what we do in everything, right? My right to happiness, my right to whatever I want, we must base the law off that. But that's very, very dangerous, right? Because once again, what do we have? Complete relativism, right? We have a person that can determine everything. You have a fundamental right to whatever you want. Now, but the problem is, well, why can't we all do whatever we want then? Well, because we give up our rights, our fundamental rights to the government, and then that government body, that giant Leviathan, then gets to make its decision on, well, I control all things political and all things church-wise. I'll determine which one of your natural rights I'll give back to you. I'll give women their natural rights back to do whatever they want to them, because that's what the government has decided to do. And what are you left to do at this point? I don't like it, but I got to live with it. Why? Because I need your protection. I've given you my rights, and now you control me. It's a very, very dangerous model of the world. If everything is matter, modern politics completely follows, and it's logical from the Hobbesian point of view. You can't say they're irrational. The, person, the, the pro-abortion person is not irrational. They're fundamentally rational if everything is matter. But this is once again why Van Til is so important, right? We have to look at our fundamental principles. If we believe that the world's not just matter, then we can't have these things. But if the world is just matter, these things follow directly. Um, it's very, very uh, sad to see, but when you, when you look back at some of the abortion history and whatnot, I just find this to be the easiest example of Hobbes in the modern times. In the famous court case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, this is what the Supreme Court Justice stated at the end of the trial. And I quote, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of life. I'll repeat that. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of life. If Planned Parenthood versus Casey, right? If everything is just matter, liberty is at its deepest level tied to you individually being able to shape out and carve out whatever kind of existence you want. That is your natural right. So be careful when you start to champion Hobbes and Locke and the idea of we have natural rights. No, 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 no. We should be championing the idea of a natural law which once again governs the rights that we can have. If not, what are we left with? We give up our natural rights and the government will then decide for you which one of your natural rights you can have back because you have a natural right to everything. Um, any questions on any of that? Justin, yeah. I have a kind of object here to yeah. the way you're presenting it. Sure. Uh, what you say is more or less true for a modern way the country has drifted to what the modern way has drifted. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, you've got to consider that other paragraph in the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. It wasn't uh, 
your right to happiness and unalienable rights. There's another paragraph that talks about laws of nature and nature's God. Absolutely. And when you go into Blackstone, you see our country would, was designed to go the opposite way from what you have been describing. And it's, that's because we've gotten away from the revealed law, which is under Blackstone. There's, there's certainly some to that. And the, the problem is most people um, view Locke's work where we get the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness and the laws of nature's God. Um, Hobbes was a... our educational system is well, corrupt. Sure. Well, that, because <laughs> I had all of that. Never once in all of the education that I was in did they cover that other paragraph. Well, once again, that goes back to Hobbes too, right? The government takes over, and right, what is the government going to control? It's going to control your education, what you're allowed to think. Corrupted into a tyrannical. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's part of the government stretching into those things. But, and, and what Locke says and what the Declaration says is a beautiful thing with the natural laws and nature's law. But when you read Locke closely, we're very, very quick to champion him. But Locke was deeply, deeply influenced by these Hobbesian ideas of natural rights. And when you read Locke on a close level, you see that Locke will continually and fundamentally put rights before law, where the Christian must condemn him there and say, no, 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 law must come before right. And you see that with the founders in the Declaration. They twist Locke. And they make it so that he's governed by law first. But when we get rid of that law and we just focus on rights and natural rights, there's a lot, a lot of danger there. So you're right. The founders took him. Read the latest Supreme Court. They didn't consider that uh, homosexuality as immoral at all. There's nothing in any of them said. They're all a bunch of secular humanists. They're going by this materialistic view. Of course. Uh, and, and it's not illogical, right, Ray? And, it's completely logical. Like a bunch of dummies sucking our thumb, letting them do it. Absolutely, right? If we, that's why this, the, the Hobbesian work is so important. If we accept strict materialism, we can't complain with the results that come down the road from materialism. And that's why those ideas have been smuggled in. It's very, very powerful work. It's one that I'd encourage most of you to spend some time with. It's probably the most important political work, like I said, of modern times. Any specific questions? Yeah. I was just wondering if, uh, if Hobbes, uh, he, he states the way it is, but is, is he for it or against? He's for it. He's for it. He thinks um, that eventually, almost in a Marxian kind of way, that eventually there's going to be there's going to be growing pains along the way. Right? You give up your rights, and you're going to be um, suffering, and there's going to be some pain along the way. But eventually, the will of this government body is better than the natural condition of man. But Hobbes isn't, he's not as Marxian as thinking that the proletariat's gonna rise up and it'll be a peaceful utopia. He thinks life is fundamentally nasty, brutish, and short, is his famous quote. Whether it's in the state of nature or in the Leviathan state, but the Leviathan is our only option. We have to hope that eventually through government intervention and through the building of the government, we can get peace amongst mankind and then can just die and return to the matter that we are. Right, almost an escape from reality. But either way is a nasty picture, right? You have the nastiness of the war of all against all, or you have the nastiness of somebody completely tyrannically controlling your life. Right? That's why he calls it a Leviathan. It's not a nice king. Right. The the the, the whole name of it is you're gonna be controlled by a sea beast. Or you can have a continual war of all against all. What do you choose? 
Um, now, Locke has a completely different point of view. Locke believes that the state of nature was a state of absolute peace. The natural condition of man is a state of peace, which once again is something that's dangerous in Locke because Locke doesn't have a vision of the fall here, right? The fall will tell us the natural condition of man is one of a war of all against all, but we need salvation from it. Locke thinks that the only reason we have struggle in the world is because there's a lack of abundance. If there was an abundance of materials, mankind would be perfectly happy. And what Hobbes would say is, no, 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 if we had an abundance of material, Mr. Phillips is over there saying, I'm going to take more for myself and leave you with less. And we, of course, right? The, the capitalist system has proved that wrong in some respects, right? There's a lot of wealth in the world and still there's lots of suffering and, and dying of disease and poverty and things of that nature. Um, any other questions on Hobbes? Did you yeah. Oh yeah, I, I highlighted that, thanks for reminding me. Uh, and I just wrote it on top again so you guys can kind of read it. It says, non est potestas superum terum quae compartutur. Um, and all that means is no one on earth, supra terum, can compare to his power. No one on earth can compare to his power. And that's taken directly, if you look at the end, from Job 41.24. No one on earth can compare to his power. Once you give up your rights to this Leviathan, he continues to grow. No individual can compare to his power. Why? Because he's the conglomeration of all of your rights you've given up. No one on earth can compare to his power. Here's the quote. Anybody else? Cool. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this opportunity to come together once again. Um, and we thank you that the world is not just material, that we have your essence, and we have your love, and we have those things which are beyond the physical. Um, we thank you for your natural law, the law that we are to live by and that guides us, and we thank you that we do not have complete freedom because um, we know where that freedom leads. Um, pray that you bless everyone here today and help them to stay safe throughout the week and bring them back here next week safely. In your name we pray, amen.